Welcome to the Film Maestro, where we talk all things film scores and movies. So, we attended a concert, didn't we? Yes, we did. <laughs> we attended a big concert, probably the biggest one of both of our lives, I'd say. Yeah, even past your uh, your Hans Zimmer concert, you would say? Uh, we'll talk about this more, but I think spectacle, <laughs> Hans Zimmer, raw, emotional music, John Williams. Yeah, so we attended the... Thursday. It was Thursday night. It was almost a week. Thursday, April 21st. Almost yeah, a week. Almost a week. The 21st of April at Carnegie Hall in New York. Um, it was titled Across the Stars. And it was our first time going to Carnegie Hall, too, which was kind of yeah, cool. for both of us. Yeah. So we were third row. Still can't believe this happened. Um, extremely close to the stage. Like, John Williams was... A little more than an arm's length. I was going to say, right? Pretty I mean, close. Like, <laughs> it was as close as we were ever going to get. It was yeah. extremely close. And like you said, we probably won't get that close ever again, most likely. But we got to see, finally see him in concert. Um, I don't know. Like, what, what was your first impressions? Like, yeah. Uh, I guess to start... I didn't know what to expect in Carnegie Hall, and it, it right. definitely it felt old, but not I in a way like that's the, like... the venue's a good thing to talk about. Yeah. Um, it didn't feel like this grand, like, huge thing. It was a very nice concert hall, but it didn't, like, blow me away in there. But it was very nice the way it was laid out. We were on the floor, obviously, third row. It was, like, I think it holds, like, three, 4,000 people. Yeah, it's, so not, it's not, huge, not huge. But I feel like most, um, I guess, orchestral concert halls don't have a huge audience. But... Um, it was amazing for sound, especially. And even, which we'll talk about this more, but there was a recording uh, of the entire concert on, I believe, 105.9 FM in the city. Yep. And Carnegie Hall live stream. Yeah, the Carnegie Hall live stream concert, did, yep. uh, for one of the FM classical radio stations out of the city. And it sounded awesome. They had a bunch of microphones up above the entire stage. And um, there is a recording out there um, kind of unofficial right now, but uh, it yeah, sounds really good. There's what um, it is. There's an official one on the Carnegie Hall's website, mm -hmm. and then yeah, if you actually want to download it, there's other ways to do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but sounds great regardless. Yeah, it's the the actual recording online though is very long, so you, okay, that's why you want to get a good cut. Yeah, plus you get all the commentary from uh, the two radio <laughs> broadcasters. <laughs> it, who, it very much sound like yeah, ESPN announcers, just like talking about John Williams, which didn't sit right with me. Also, they, because which, um, I guess we can go into the encores a little bit also. Um, yeah, but before, William, we, before yeah. we get into that, though, let's let's talk about, like, the track list we got. Yes, we so, have to set it up first. <laughs> so we had Sound the Bells, mm -hmm. great opening. Then we had the New York premiere of the Violin Concerto number two. How long did that clock in at? It was, like, 21 minutes or something? Uh, it's, like, 37 minutes. Was it? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Then we had the first encore of Across the Stars from Attack of the Clones, mm -hmm. which well, that was awesome. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. Um, then we had the break. It was around 20, 15, Probably 20, 20 minutes. minutes. Yeah. Um, then we got Flight to Neverland from Hook. Close encounters of the third kind. My which favorite. I think was your favorite. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then we got three little pieces, how we introduced them. So we got the duel from the Adventures of Tintin, um, Hedwig's theme, and theme from Cinderella Liberty. Mm -hmm. Which is like his early jazz the um I ages, from nineteen seventy three, I think. Yeah, yeah, which is cool to see. It was pre Spielberg, so That's right, yeah. Early on. And then we got the throne room finale from A New Hope. Yes. 
very, very highly anticipated, I think, mm. from everyone. Yeah. And then we got three encores, which was one more in the Philly concert. Yeah, Philly capped out at two. Um, I think the and then uh, this is orchestra kinda, was kind of signaling for a third one, but he didn't do it. And this is kind of interesting, too. So yesterday he played at Pittsburgh. Okay. Monday night. Wow, he's traveling everywhere still. Oh, Good yeah. For him. And he did play all three, too. Really? Okay. But again, it, it was different because the violin concerto was not conducted by him. I forget who oh, it was. It was okay. a two-part concert. That's why I told you that huh. the Carnegie Hall one was special because he, he was, was doing conducting. the entire thing. Yeah. Which is not too often because, again, he's getting older. Right. But yeah, so we got Schindler's List, Flying Thing from E.T., and the Imperial March. That was awesome. And... Was that the actual... That was the listing, too, right? It was one, two, three, that same order? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that was... And it was... All three of those. It was quite a track list. It's amazing how it almost got stronger as the encores as it went on, which you don't usually expect. Yeah, and um, I will admit, the first time I saw the set list, uh, which AJ AJ can attest to this, (laughs) I was not impressed on paper. Um, Cinderella Liberty didn't stand out to me. I thought that they were missing E.T., which they were. Uh, Of course, it was an encore, but it wasn't guaranteed on the set list. And, you know, Tintin and Hook, they're awesome, but they weren't what I would first want to hear live. But I think the fact, fundamentally, that Williams was six feet in front of us and had a lot of energy, um, didn't show his age, I don't think, at all, besides maybe getting up and down from the podium. But even then, um, you know, he just, he had the the same spirit when conducting. If you watch any of his older videos of him um, at the Olympics or with Berlin for years, he looked awesome. Right. And I think that takes us right to like some of his fan inter- interactions. Yes. Which yeah. I was surprised by. I, I didn't know like how it would feel to be like in his presence mm-hmm. and like how he would like when he talked, how it would feel. But like he was very, very friendly, which I did not expect actually like so much. Like he, the first funny moment was the beginning of the violin concerto where <laughs> yeah. he uh, a phone went off in the back and then we got he did a hush yeah he's uh there's a great moment from uh I believe it was was it uh was it Carrie Fisher's tribute at like Star uh, yeah, Wars celebration yeah, yep, or something yep, I know what you're talking about the entire crowd because he ended up conducting a uh, set from Star Wars in commemoration of uh Carrie Fisher after she passed and I believe it was in in line with Last Jedi and um he the crowd was like cheering and, and screaming because obviously it's him it's his orchestra I believe it was the same orchestra he used to conduct all three uh, of the sequel films and nonetheless they were screaming and shouting and he turns around and just goes shh and everyone yep. dies down immediately <laughs> it's one of my favorite moments from him and he did that kind of he had, uh, in front of us which was awesome he had to total control over the audience yeah based on what he said <laughs> yeah and right. he didn't even really he spoke a couple times to introduce some of the pieces but right. all the the opening and the finale he didn't say anything and yet he had total command of the room. It was fantastic. I mean, I think we have to talk about the elephant in the room because we haven't mentioned the violinist yet. Yes. Sophie Mutter. I think because Mutter, Mutter, I think, yeah, one of the two. She was excellent. She was shocking. Yeah, and she had so much control over the most fine details of yeah, every performance. I've, I've, I've never seen someone play the violin that way where she knew every ounce of her violin, mm-hmm. every tone, every sound you could get out of it. Yeah, it and she had a lot of personality in it too, especially some cool. of the pieces. Yeah, which I, I didn't know how I would like her as much if she would like take away the fame almost from Williams. Right, but it was actually turned out to be a perfect combination. I, I, I think I told you at the concert I was like together they're like perfect mm-hmm. because 
she pretty much echoed the Philadelphia Orchestra as like the main person and you had Williams of course but of course as as cool as to see Chunk Williams he doesn't affect the orchestra of course right right so seeing I think she added like a, a cool piece to everything right and of course all the things that she played was written just for her too for her violin right so we got to see these cool versions which I think was kind of cool I think we have to talk about the concerto, though, because it was a New York premiere. It's only been played a few times so far. I think once or twice it did premiere at Tanglewood, I think, last year. I don't even know. But I think it was written in 2020, so that makes sense. You know, John Williams wrote it. Now he's conducting it. Again, it was written just for her as well. Mm-hmm. So what was your takeaway? Uh, for me, it was not my favorite part of the night. Okay. Um, which I know I talked about this a little bit. It was very strong in the moment. Um but I think for me, with any concerto, just in general, going from something that's entirely new and still has very much of Williams' flair and style, and it was very nice when the orchestra would uh, work together nicely with Mutter and pre- present a really cool, like, I guess, climax to one section, and then it would go into the next or four, I believe. Um, but something about going from a completely new piece to some really recognizable pieces that I've been looking forward to, it just was naturally drowned out for me. Um, but I know you had some some more positive thoughts I think no yeah um, first again it clocked in around 37 minutes so just under 40 minutes mm-hmm. and it felt like it was like 5 minutes for me really yeah I definitely felt the length but really? not in a bad way yeah. when I I think towards the third or fourth section I looked at my watch because I was curious to see how much time has passed and I was like there's no way there's mm-hmm. like a few minutes left yeah I think it was like 7.50 and I was like really yeah especially because it was uninterrupted 40 minutes and a lot of it Williams was um, letting uh, Mutter perform a little bit quasi uh, improvisational for her part so a lot of it was more just her riffing and then bringing a collective um, like finale to her own section back for the rest of the orchestra so there were a lot of times where he was just not to say waiting but he was waiting and yet he was up there for 40 minutes you know no breaks it was straight through that was right after um sound of the bells too yeah and the second section that it was it's called rounds it's actually that's single sections available to listen to online okay um it's been released june 3rd it looks like gotcha. i think that was my favorite <clears throat> it had like a build-up of the uh of the strings beforehand as it as it went throughout that section i think that was the strongest but yeah, i would agree with you that's, I, that stuck out to me see i i think like you said, it's not like E.T., but also the point of this concert, and I think when we saw some of the, like the other concert with the music of John Williams, it was to showcase all that he can do. Right. Right. And that's why, like, you got, like, some of his, his jazz selections. You got Sound the Bells. Some things that might not, you might inst- not instantly think of when you think of Williams, but again, right. he did all this, and it's like everything he can do, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Yeah, that's a good point. Um and especially like I brought up earlier, he had a lot of energy throughout the whole thing um, and played, like we said, three encores. And every time it, it seems tradition um, for the conductor to leave the stage and then come back right. out. And it's William's thing to kind of just let it happen, especially for the last piece. He didn't even introduce it. Uh, he kind of did, but very briefly. Um, he, and he just kind of walked out and said, we're doing this. He introduced Schindler's List, mm-hmm. flying theme, but not the Imperial March. Oh, he didn't even introduce it at all. I was he, getting probably the mixed up, but yeah, he just walked out and started playing. He played the first two like notes, and everyone just started clapping. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you can hear it on the recording too if you uh, look on Carnegie Hall's website. You can hear the 
two announcers being like, oh, he, he's walking back out on stage probably to bow, and then you hear the Imperial March start, and everybody starts <laughs> cheering, and it was a very, very fun moment. Um, but even then, still for the finale, he had a lot of energy, and my favorite part about his conducting style is he will kind of tailor his focus to a specific section right. when it's their moment, and um, not something I've seen many other conductors do, and it feels very personal, especially, I can't imagine, from the orchestra's perspective, you're a player, and you know he's looking right at you and encouraging you to you know maybe be more pronounced, maybe be a little softer with how you're playing, but still nonetheless like giving you like direct feedback even during a performance um, when it's kind of your moment to shine. I feel like that's a really cool way to do it. And even still, at 90 years old, he's you know he's been doing that forever, but still keeping up that uh, that style, which I right. like. And um, he had this really cool fan moment, and I guess it was the end of the first half with Across the Stars mm-hmm. where he went on his. Uh, his uh, talk about how he didn't know which which movie Across the Stars was from. Mm-hmm. It was like, it's one of the nine Star Wars movies. And we had a fan um, put two fingers. Right in front of us, Jay held up two. In the air. And it was actually someone from John Williams' fan forum, which is even cooler because he talked about it on the, um, on the website. Right. But, and again, and then Williams was like, oh yeah, it's number two. <laughs> it was, it was that's from funny. the there's like, what did you say that's someone Natalie Portman he's one, that's the one she's associated with yeah yeah um, um, it was yeah that was fun again he he very much engaged with the crowd um, which I, I didn't know how it was going to be but yeah he he it felt like he was very very friendly yeah and I would say very um, humble as you said before too I think yeah he's always been very not Tim is kind of a bad way to put it but um, it's I guess a good description of you know how he is he doesn't showboat he's not. You know, he's always focusing the orchestra first. He has them all stand up, um, very much so not about himself, even though that's why most people were there. But um, I will say he definitely actually did a better job than Hans Zimmer did at his own concert with introducing pieces. Um, I remember Hans Zimmer introduced Angels and Demons in the beginning of his set list. This was Hans Zimmer Live from 2017. And then didn't introduce anything remaining until um, his piece Aurora for uh, the shooting after Dark Knight Rises released in was Texas. There a track and that was list? it. No. There like was but it wasn't specific. Okay. Um, and like, there were some pieces that weren't in there like that did, he ended up playing. Did say like the Dark Knight, for example. It did. Or like yeah. Inception. So you just but, knew who's playing something from that movie but not exactly what piece he was playing. Yeah, which was annoying because it was like, oh, I wasn't I was very much so into film scores, obviously, but I wasn't entirely knowledgeable of every track and knowing by ear, oh, that's, you know, such and such. Um, So it was nice to hear, you know, Williams actually say, you know, Hedwig's theme, not just Harry Potter, you know. And And something else, too, you notice how he said, I'm going to play Hedwig? He had little nicknames. Yeah, he has has nicknames for his pieces. Yeah, it's kind of cool. I know I've heard he has called the Imperial March just Darth Vader before. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, he he has like little nicknames, so that was cool. He's like, oh, I'm gonna play Hedwig. Yeah, he's like Hedwig the bird. I think he said mm-hmm. it's funny. Yeah, and he described it, you know, trying to figure out how to time the theme with his flying, which I never would think about. Right. Um, but it makes so much sense, especially when you're watching the he's film with the, the speed. Yeah. Yep. And I liked his story with the Avengers of Tintin too, which I have not seen. I when I went home, the first thing I did was look up the <laughs> fighting scene, the duel. Yeah. It was a good movie, underrated for sure. The animation was, looks very unique, so. It's like a very, uh, it's much better than this, but it's in the same vein as uh, Polar Express. It's kind of like a fake uh-huh. motion capture, but clearly CG. Um, unique, but I think they actually did a good job with Tintin. There's something else, too. The the original listing on the Car- Carnegie Hall's website was, I believe, 90 minutes plus 20-minute intermission, mm-hmm. which puts it just you know a little bit over an hour of playing time. 
Right. <laughs> he played for almost two hours, I think a little bit over, actually. Yeah. Because the, the concert started a little late, around 7, 10, I believe. Yeah. It was within 10 minutes and before it started. It, it didn't end until 9.30. Yeah. So and we were, we were we ended up running back to make a train, but we were anticipating being out by 9 and having a comfortable oh yeah, walk back, but we it was 9.35 the, when he stopped. We were planning on taking, like, the 9.06 train back. Yeah, that didn't happen, obviously. <laughs> and then next thing we know, it's like... We must have got out at like, you said like nine thirty, probably like nine forty, and then we made the was it ten oh six bus or something? Yeah, we had to train or something. We had to sprint back to uh, Grand Central. That was fun walking through. Probably like one mile. Yeah, yeah, it was like a half hour walk that we made in like twenty, and we were here flying. But um, I expect there would be so many people in Times Square too at like that time. Yeah, I feel like it's always busy even during the week, especially now. People, you know, COVID's ramping down, so everybody's trying to make up for that lost time. Um, something else that's kind of cool that happened was the next day, he actually went to Juilliard. Really? Because basically someone, I think in their orchestra, they were, they were playing John Williams music. It seems like a big theme. A lot of orchestras are doing John Williams this year for mm-hmm. his 90th He birthday. also went to Juilliard after um, serving in the military, I'm pretty sure. Okay. And he studied piano there. That makes sense. Because I think they named their orchestra like the John Williams Orchestra or something like that. Oh, really? But that makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, so someone reached out, I think, to the conductor or something. It was like, hey, can you try and get John Williams here because he was in, you know, he's going to be in New York. And apparently, there's pictures online too. He not only went to the school, but he conducted their orchestra. That's awesome. That's got to be. I think they played, looks like some Jurassic Park, Superman, Adventures wow. on Earth, and like some <sighs> Harry Potter. <laughs> that is awesome. That is awesome. So a little request turns like this big event the school it looks like again like he did he was at philly on tuesday night he went to new york thursday night and he went here i guess the next day mm-hmm. and then he was at pittsburgh last night yeah that is a lot of travel for him um even still i know he's not traveling a ton overseas um he still has though he did berlin this year he did vienna two years it's- ago right He's still moving. Yeah, he's, he's still going. Yeah. Like you said, the only time we noticed his, his age was walking off the podium, I think is the right word to use. Yeah, this his podium on the front was like another step mm-hmm. up, and it was kind of an awkward height regardless of how old you are. So, Do you, uh, uh, do really you remember <laughs> before the concert started when this guy walked out <laughs> that looked like John Williams? Oh, yeah, there was a moment where... <laughs> I was like, I look, it's John a, Williams. <laughs> I think he was a violin player um, in like the middle row, so not any of the first chairs, but... He was little row, and he he looked similar, <laughs> especially to Glance, like same style hair, same beard, same height. Um, and he was like, "It's John Williams." And I was like on my phone. I looked up. I was like, "Where?" And then uh, you know, it's not him. After a second, he's like too tan or something. You have but. to you have you have to tell you have to tell what happened when John Williams first walked. Out. Oh yeah. So, <laughs> so I yeah. had my like the program out, and I was I had my phone on my lap, uh, which I, sh- I should just have in my pocket, oh. and. Um, the first violin chair uh, walked out on stage, and he's he led the tuning session, which is standard for all orchestras. Uh, beautiful sound. At that point, it was just clapping. No one's standing up yet. Right. And was it... It was just John Williams first, right? Yep. So John Williams walks out, and of course, we're in the third row, so we can't see far backstage. And they have... Right. At Carnegie Hall, they have two side like these, doors these that are really tall. doors, yeah. And they open. You can tell that someone was walking through. And happening. you hear people on the balcony start cheering and, and screaming and clapping. And I was like, okay, this is John Williams. And um, I go to stand up, and my phone falls from my lap because 
I had it on my lap still. And it hits the floor, and I was like, oh, no. And so I, I lean down and try to find it. Long story short, I look up, and he's already at the podium, and I, like, miss that whole, <laughs> so, so that whole I, first I'm standing walk. up and clapping, and I look down, and you're just, like, trying to find <laughs> I'm trying to find my phone. <laughs> I'm like, of course, this is what happens yeah. to you. I was like, man, this just ruined it. Because, but, you know, I, I also told you before, I was like, do you think everyone's going to stand up when he walks in? You're like, eh, probably not. Did I really? I guess you're, for the first like, I was walking like, eh, in. Yeah. You know, and that's something else to talk about was... Fans loved John Williams. Even every piece. After every piece, someone was standing up, yep. especially in the front row. Um, yep. Um, he kind of led the charge with that. Which you weren't too happy about, but everyone yeah. stood up for every piece. Yeah. Pretty much. It was... The clapping was not going to stop. That was the best way to put it. No, John it Williams not. had to basically be like, all right, guys, that's good. Yeah, and <laughs> or he, has, he like tapped his... Or he, uh, or he just started playing again. Yeah, he tapped <laughs> his, uh, his baton, I think, once or twice on the little railing that was next to the podium just to get everyone's attention. Um, but yeah, I, I I understand why there's you know this very like cordial specific sort of tradition to conducting, which is, uh, basically creates a time where the conductor keeps leaving the stage and re-entering. Um, but I think for the sake of like the concert, it just felt very American. Like oh, we're gonna scream and holler after every piece and not just let them do their thing. So I also, don't know if it'd be annoying from their perspective. I know if I was in their shoes, it would be. But they you also notice how. And Sophie didn't get a standing ovation, like when she came out. I know, yeah, that surprised me because I'm, I was shocked to see she's, she's, how good she she's was. She's more famous than you think, too. Oh yeah, she's, especially overseas, she's, she's done a lot, of, lots of Europe. awards. She's regarded like just as famous for violin as like Yo Yo Ma is, which I think is a, I would say, pretty household name for a lot of people for like cello yeah, for cello, yeah. but like, a lot of people know him. Mm-hmm. And again, John Williams did a big collab with him years ago. Even recently, he did uh, yeah, an album. A new album's him. coming out it's called "Gathering of Friends," right? With Yoda I think he released a couple singles Williams. from it, but not a full set list yet. Yeah, which is I think some Schindler's List. Some mm-hmm. uh, I forget what else, but yeah, it's gonna be a fun album. But yeah, she was highly underrated, I think, by the crowd and going in. Mm-hmm. Again, that that's not what you you think of. Yeah, and I was surprised to see um, even at the end. Like, yeah, there was a, a ton of standing and clapping, um, but she. Um, she didn't get the full focus, I think, because most people were probably there just you know, to see Williams. Also, the set list is set up where like she's a guest. That makes right. sense because John Williams starts conducting Sound the Bells and he ended with the Imperial March, mm-hmm. which were both just with an orchestra, not with her. Right, she wasn't featured. She was almost pieces. like a special guest. Is yeah, that like, like John Williams with and Sophie Mutter, not like John Williams and her. We so. have some of the uh, tracks. Why don't we play Sound the Bells? Sure, let's do it.
So that was Sound the Bells. That was the opening to the concert. And you heard some of the clapping at the end. But I love this this piece. I haven't really heard too much. I've heard it before. But again, it's, I think it's like a different opening because I know he opens sometimes with one big fanfare sometimes, which you have preferred, you said. I think it's a really good opening, and we Sound heard the bells it. or Olympic fanfare. Olympic fanfare. Okay. Um, I really like Sound of the Bells for this because it was different from what we heard in New Haven a couple weeks ago. Um, it was written for in for Japan. Yes. The, now the I think the current emperor, if I'm not mistaken, based on the program. But that sounds right. Yeah. It's a very unique sound, and it almost sounds like a a band, like a like a high school band or something. Like that. That's the feel you get with the rhythm. Yeah, it's not in a cool. bad way at all. Um, no, in the best but like possible a very, way. Like a very catchy way. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, it feels very um, like good for a procession, I guess, mm-hmm. and captures that energy. So it was good to start with, but I think um, for my own uh, personal taste, I guess, I, the Olympic theme and fanfare, not the bugler's dream, but the Olympic theme and, th- theme and fanfare, right. tongue twister, um, is a little bit stronger, I think. That's just me. Um, so what's your favorite... What's your favorite piece that they played? <sighs> favorite piece? Um, definitely Close Encounters. I think that why? was the why, chill and Why did you like it me. so much? Maybe. Because um, I don't remember you talking about Close Encounters that much. Yeah. I pref- if I had to pick between, I guess, his two space movies outside of Star Wars, it would yeah. have to be E.T. Um, I think Adventures on Earth is still, I've said this before, it's his best. Is E.T. a space movie? Alien, I guess. Like that kind of category of alien invasion, but not really invasion. Well, I mean, in that way, that's like saying, what's it called? What's a Joaquin Phoenix movie? um, Not Aliens. I'm saying it wrong. Um, You know what I'm talking about? He's young. Oh, Signs. Signs. Yeah, that's a good one. That's like saying Signs is a space movie. Okay. It's like Alien Invasion, I guess. That's Um, But in like a Spielberg way. Anyway, only if it's two movies. But if I had to pick the two, it would be E.T. And yet... I really love the ending um, finale. Kind of fitting that both E.T. and Close Encounters, my favorite piece from both are the endings, but particularly Close Encounters, I really love what he does with the ending. And just the theme is a little less um, familiar for many people, but it's very very nostalgic for me. And I really loved how he did it in concert. It was awesome. If If I had to pick, which I can't, (laughs) Um, (laughs) Hedwig's theme was a big hit for me personally I really liked the arrangement I told you that before too going into the concert but I mean there's so many but Throne Room Finale of course was just so good I know you've been wanting to hear that forever and I'm glad you played it Um, it's not my no no it's nothing to do with the performance I think Um, just naturally it's not my favorite piece from Star Wars I don't know what it is. I've tried to... Enjoy it. I've not <laughs> even tried to enjoy there it. There was nothing to not enjoy. I don't want to make it sound like the live part was like, eh, it's just a throne room. But um, it was really powerful. And I think you brought this up as a good point. Like, Philadelphia, the symphony orchestra is big, but it's not this 300-piece explosion. Lo- there is a big difference in sound. I brought, I'm glad yes. you brought that up between that and the New Haven Orchestra for me. It's, again, it could have been because it was at Carnegie Hall... But the sound was so much more full. Yes. Right. And especially the horn section, I loved the strings in both pretty evenly. But I think the horns were nothing to their uh, discredit for New Haven Symphony. It was just they were a little weaker just on numbers. It's about their fall, yes. Yeah, but, but you, they had some really great You definitely horns. felt them more non-like Star Wars, for example. But yeah. like I would say Close Counters 
or like sound the bells it really comes out as the um the horn section right and f- i think of all the encores though i can't pick one no I I liked Flying Theme, but I really wish it was Avengers on Earth a little more. I told you. It's like... I know. I shouldn't be complaining. It's like taking the Phantom Menace, watching (laughs) Duel of the Fates scene, and saying, eh, I want to watch the whole thing. Like, no, you got the best part. It's fine. You got got the best part out of the 10-minute version. I know, but uh, there's some of those parts that I really like more. Anyway, that was really strong. Here's a great question. Would you rather have gone Avengers on Earth and the concert ends... Or f- and not get Imperial March or get Flying Theme and Imperial March. You only choose one. To be completely honest with you, I would rather get Adventures on Earth have it end there. Do you the understand? Because full, the, full, the full thing is 15 minutes. Do you understand the history, though? Oh, I of know. Of seeing him play Imperial March. I know. Like, I'm there's not something about recognizing that. the importance of that some because I, for some reason, am ignorant. I don't know. But long story short, I have like this attachment to Avengers on Earth for some reason. So I think if... And I'm pretty sure it started from this show, too. From listening to when we did E.T. It was well before that, but it was reinforced again because I bounced around a bunch, as we do, between you know, pieces and songs that we like just in general. And they kind of got reunited when we listened to it live. Reunited. Because um, I, I will listen to it periodically. It's like the one track I go to pretty regularly, regardless of, I guess, mood or interest. So to hear that live by Williams would be like the pinnacle for me. Kind of like I guess how throne room is for you. That would be my throne room. I think, <laughs> I think you will get that at a Tanglewood concert sometime. Yeah, well, he does I, play I it so. occasionally, but it's not often. Yeah, but I think the biggest surprise was Schindler's List. Oh, for sure. I'm so glad they did that though. They had. To. I I went of course. I went to the original and played this. Went back and forth. Mm-hmm. It's it's so close. It's very close, and I think Isaac Perlman did the original. It's the best version we will probably ever see. Oh, easily. And I would say that, um, I forget her name, unfortunately, for the New New Haven Symphony Orchestra. She was a guest. Um, But she did a very good job, but you can tell that she was not... um, not, The piece was so hard and very difficult to perform, but she was not in it completely like Mutter was. She was in it start to finish, um, made it her own without changing a, a lot. So two things we we talked about outside of you know walking back to the train, how Williams didn't change this. Like right. Hedwig's theme is such a show off piece, with, you know, with her violin part. Right. But this is just the original because it's an emotional piece and you're paying respect, right? Right. The and reverence it, of it, it kind is of high. It stays yeah. that way, mm-hmm. which is great. And I think as an encore, it, it doesn't work because it's like the the mood just you know like if you watch. So I think. When she went in the back, and when she came back out, you can kind of see her face. Like she was like taking a deep breath. Right, she was like getting, getting into in the, the mindset, mindset of yeah. playing Schindler's List because it's it's very awkward to play here. Because again, I think the audience was like, "Wow!" Like they were they were kind of shocked. I think when he announced it, it wasn't. Yeah, it was not a cheer. Really it was more like an oh, but not in a bad no. way. Just a very like I don't know how to react because I, I everything think, was built up with. I, I don't room. think you. Described I, it, I don't it. think you described it the best way. I, th- I think it was more of like a. Um, like a surprise, not like I a, guess so. Yeah. I think how you said it was more like negative, but it wasn't at all. I didn't mean to sound like it was negative. It was just yeah. That's at least in the recording when I was listening to it was like oh it sounds like everyone's complaining, but it, it wasn't. It was just like a it was like more of a gasp. I think yeah, what I think yeah. way to describe. I guess it. like if you had a room full of Williams fans, how they would sound <laughs> gasping. I guess is what that would sound like. <laughs> yeah, but and um, also people yeah. held up lightsabers. <laughs> yeah, behind us there were like three people who were hanging, holding them up. I think since. 
I think it was starting with Hedwig's scene. They were like holding up, and, yeah. and Williams kept pointing to them. I, I really think that's one of the reasons why he played Imperial March at the end. Yeah. And also, he didn't want to leave Carnegie Hall. <laughs> mm-hmm. He was yeah. loving it. Yeah, I think it was definitely the venue that helped bring that third piece out a little bit. Right. Yeah. And there was some interesting security. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. one way to put it. But um, yeah. we had the fan try to, I think, bring up some type of instrument like or something or a violin or something. Yeah, it was hard to tell because there was like a whole thing. I wasn't really paying attention that they, well like, to the they, front. They like, ran up to the front. Mm-hmm. Several times. Right? It was like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, you know, it has a pen, like William signed it. And of course, William's being polite. He just kind of nodded no. Right. Like the most polite way possible. Yeah, which is, it's shocking that someone would think that that would work. And then security got it. Because <laughs> there were a few times, and he was walking up there, and I was like, does he have a camera? I don't know what yeah, he's it was, doing. it was very confusing. Yeah, and sure enough, he, I guess he was trying to sign a violin, maybe, or a guitar. I don't know what it was. And then there was another time. Another fan bring John Williams flowers, yes. as well as a vinyl of, I think it was a new, of the original Star Wars, too, on vinyl. And I think she was getting trying to get that signed, too. Right. And eventually, because like, she went up there a few times, and security was like, yeah, you can't do that. Yeah, she was able to give him the flowers, um, which is very sweet to and see. And then Williams handed it to one of the first viol- violinists, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah. Yep. That was after Imperial March, right? That was a finale. Nope. It was, was, at, it, was, it was at ET. Fun. Was it really? Because okay. I, I remember that she had to put the flowers in the ground. Oh. I, I, I thought it was so funny. Yeah, she didn't know what to do. Yeah. I just thought it was so funny. I was like, oh, there's the flowers on the ground, and we're playing. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. It's like the most calm form of heckling possible. Yep. Um, and it's not even in bad taste. It's just, you know, out of sheer love for him. So, Yeah, it was definitely pure love for John Williams. Yeah. And the standing ovation was there. Like, again, every piece, everyone standing up, lots of clapping, cheering, mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. It um, was very, um, I don't know what the, really the word is, because I've tried it, to compare it's still, it to. It's still, I'm still in shock that it happened. <laughs> Yeah, I would agree with Still you. Still processing Especially it. this weekend, it kind of hit me that it's already over. Um, I'm just trying to compare it to any other concerts I've been to, but there's not many. It was Hans Zimmer, and I went to a Journey concert when I was like in seventh grade randomly, and they were not amazing. <laughs> um, but I'm just trying to compare it to Hans Zimmer because I think the audience for him was younger than this, but, okay. but not entirely. Like there were, I would say, a decent amount of like yeah, younger-ish people younger there. Yeah, definitely younger people than like the New Haven concert. Oh, definitely. <laughs> right. Yeah, it yeah. was noticeably... Yeah. Um, not, I would say anyone our age, but definitely twenty-year-olds easily. It was something about how it was very formal. Yeah, that like made the to set the tone, the mood. Right. And you were like, "Wow, I'm seeing John Williams in person." Yeah, and I just remember the uh, butterflies I had before when you see some of the uh, players out on stage, kind of practicing on their own before everyone walked out, and before you really realize that he's, you know, leaving from that door any second. It, it was just a whole. And like it was a very unique experience that I haven't had in a while, and you especially and I, with COVID. You and I were like, "Where are they playing? Is that ET? I think that's ET." You were I'm trying like, to guess like one violinist with all the other noise in the background, what they're trying to. A work lot on. of the first violinists were practicing the force theme at the end, mm-hmm. the binary sunset when it goes very high up, right on the E string on the violin, and there were multiple multiple of them practicing that part. It is very difficult, yeah, especially for um, strings too, because it's just kind of awkward especially like you're able to see it live which is another thing too like um i think with the recordings especially for newer pieces they are touched up obviously in post and it kind of it still sounds obviously very human especially compared to some modern music but seeing it live you can see where just naturally there's limitations but still there's so much power behind it that you don't really get in a recording right they kind of 
make everything sound perfect in a recording, but they diminish the power of like the percussion or even just the horns. Like you could actually feel the room it, shaking. It's when funny you say that played. because some of these recordings actually <clears throat> from the concert. I think it was especially Hedwig's theme. You hear different instruments, like you said, because yeah. it's not recording. Right. So, so you hear everything other, differently other than you would in a recording. Stand out yeah. because yeah. it's not fake; it's real. Right, in a good way. And like, especially if a player like maybe wants to belt from a French horn at some point, and like it sounds awesome. Maybe in a recording they'll bring that down, and so it kind of diminishes that part. But live, it sounded fantastic for all. Did the you pieces. notice too how I was? I wasn't sure, and I was surprised how obviously you have a whole orchestra playing, and then you have Anne Sophie on the violin by herself her sound still stood out so much yeah and i don't think that was just because we were in third row i think that was just um the like really good acoustics in the room and like she wasn't using any accompaniment from a microphone or anything the only time there are two speakers on the sides and probably built-in ones around the the entire theater but i'm pretty sure that was just for the microphone that williams was using yeah and her sound was still so um what's the word i'm looking for was just again it stood out so much because I, I was like isn't it going to blend in like you're not going to hear it but no her solos you know it's, it's really a solo in a, in a way even though it's not a real solo because she's playing with an orchestra it's right. it's the her show you know that's mm-hmm. how they're in they're very much for her right it's look at me right right yeah but again like I, I think it was a just about perfect concert <laughs> Oh, for sure. And even just from, I'm glad that the fan experience was very high. I right. wasn't sure how it would be, especially in Carnegie Hall, you know, the history of it, the, you know, um, formal tire was very different from what I knew on Zimmer's concert, which was very much so flashy and, you know, be whatever, you know, write whatever you want and just have a lot of fun, whereas I wasn't sure how this would be. But you could definitely tell the fans, which I would say was everyone, because everyone was excited. Nothing was a letdown. The venue yes. wasn't. The fans, the music, John Williams. Right. Um, that list, we got surprises. You know, it, it's always scary now with COVID. You never know when someone might test positive. As, yeah, we were nervous the whole as, week. As we saw with Sal at Quinnipiac, or with yeah. Giant the other week. You never know when something's going to get called off or canceled. So right. the fact that everything worked out and we were able to get a train, get yeah, back. Yeah, there and back at like a decent time too. The whole the fact that it all worked out so well was was really spectacular. And we still got home before I think one o'clock, which is a miracle. Yeah, yeah, we got back to our dorm before since the concert ended later than we thought. Yeah. So yeah, everything worked out, and it was it was for the better. Like it was really good and it was really really fun. I think it gives us more credibility now. When we're talking about John Williams. Yeah, and it's also um, <laughs> also once in a lifetime too. You know, it's has age now. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's getting older, and I know he has said um, after Indiana Jones Five, he's going to not even retire. He's just going to stop composing for films. Music. Yeah, and he's going to compose instead concertos and more solo pieces, which I like that a lot. Of he's probably going to be writing until he's a hundred. Hopefully, God willing, if he if he can. Hopefully, next time we see him is at Tanglewood. Hopefully. That's what I want to see him at yeah. next. That'll be a fun one. One of his film nights, hopefully. Yeah, and he has a lot of, I think, a, not that he doesn't have a connection to Carnegie Hall because it's more the venue itself. It was but a very Tanglewood, special he has a very good connection at to Carnegie it. Hall. That's why I liked it, right? Yeah. Because Tanglewood's more his home with the yeah. Boston Orchestra, Boston Pops, too. Right. But um, I think that's all we got for the concert. I think as we transition to our next sec- section, we're going to play one of the pieces. So you want to play E.T. or Imperial March? Um, Let's do E.T., okay. I think.
That was the live recording of the flying theme from Carnegie Hall's performance on April 21st. And as you heard, it did not disappoint at all. <laughs> not at all. And he mixed, he mixed it well um, yes. with the finale for the entire film, uh, which sounded awesome. So start to finish, that piece was perfect. Yeah. Well, it's time to move on, unfortunately. And today's topic will be the first Lord of the Rings movie, The Fellowship of the Ring. Yes, shifting gears entirely from Williams. <laughs> yes. So it's Peter Jackson's movie from mm-hmm. 2001, which is actually, as I was doing some research, it's a good comparison of the uh, prequels because they came out not too far apart from each other. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. Within years, so. And cool. I think that entire era from like 90... 90- Jurassic Park. I guess Jurassic Park. So like all of 90s through 2007 was peak for Williams. I think it's definitely still peak for Howard Shore. Spielberg. Uh, Peak for Spielberg just because of how much work they did. Like they were working every year, at least two projects a year. Um, Spielberg went from so many just in that little time frame between 2000 and 2005. So that time frame was like, even though it's so far into everyone's career at that point, it was fantastic time. I still believe peak cinema is from is the 90s. Yeah, I think so. Just the variation you get. Yeah. Yeah. Because even like the independent films like Fight Club still hold up. You know, Mm -hmm. nowadays it's not like that at all. All right, so it's time to talk about Howard Shore's album. Yes. Two. (laughs) Technically two albums. Which we get the complete edition. It's called the complete recordings. Yes. So it is the whole album. (laughs) And what's what I like a lot. You can't complain about this like the prequels. No, you can't. Um, there's nothing even in the films to complain about either. It's both nope. both story and music work together in such a seamless way. Um, but what I like about this a lot is you have the album, which is touched up, you know, perfected recordings. And it's a little shorter than the complete recordings, obviously. But the complete recordings are the samples used in the film. Um, not exactly, because, of course, some stuff's edited and moved around. But by and large, it's what you hear in the movie. So yeah. I really love that you get both. It's pretty much the film version, yeah. Yeah, and even, like, the smaller scenes um, where the music might not be that huge, like, they still have this here. And I think this is kind of something that Disney should look at um, when they're doing their homework and just say, oh, there's a demand here. Look at what, you know, I guess, what, is it Warner Brothers for Lord of the Rings? Yes. Warner Brothers. Um, look at what they, they've done with Water Tower Records and getting all this stuff out there for people. Like, this is what Disney should do I mean, for all the Star Wars recordings this, this they have. This album three hours long. Yeah, plus the theatri- like the original theatrical yeah. soundtrack. It's fantastic That's that we have normal. all access to this. <laughs> no, it's not normal. Yeah. should be, but it's not normal. So let's talk about the movie. Yeah. We haven't rewatched it, unfortunately, uh, just for the sake of issues with time. But Finals. we've seen it. Um, I know you've seen it several times. I've yep. seen it a handful. I think it was two years ago. I was I got the 4K disc set of the Steelbooks from Best Buy of all three movies. Mm-hmm. It's like a it's not really, it's not a remaster. Like Peter Jackson said, I ain't redo the effects, but like the effects look better. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's because they upscaled to 4K. Like did they upscale the effects? He said no. But all the effects look even better than the original in the Blu-ray mm-hmm. which was already amazing. Right. And holds up very well. But the 4K set puts it above everything else. For me, because I, on Larabox, I re-rated it with the 4K set. I said this was second to only Interstellar mm-hmm. in terms of the best-looking 4K movies I own. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. For some reason, like, every, again, just like you expect from a 4K, because what it was shot on originally... You're able to actually upscale to 4K the right way, 
So mm-hmm. again, you're seeing every pore, every detail on everyone's face. From a movie from you know from 2000 and what did I say one. It's 2001, 2001 through 2003 yeah. is when they the three came out, but they've been shooting since 1998. So yeah, yeah. the fact that, and I think this all three of these films, particularly even the first one, it looks better than most of the stuff we're getting now because of how. And I don't know why Hollywood's ditched this technique. I know it takes more effort, but combining miniatures with CGI touch-ups yeah. instead of just making a whole CGI sequence, it just looks so much better. You just a little bit of lighting on like a real, maybe it's foam, doesn't matter, but it's a real object and putting a light on it is going to look infinitely better than building that they object did, in a blender. They did blender. so much yeah. to get everything. One of the main things in this comparison to Hobbits was the, the orcs, mm-hmm. how it's practical makeup. Right. In the Lord of the Rings. And then the Hobbit undoes that, and it's mostly CGI. Right. It doesn't stand out at all. It's la- it seems lazy. Um, I'm sure it was still a lot of work, which is unfortunate for all the artists involved. But, um, And, like, you know, you could tell its effects practically from the first three. But it's not in a bad way. Like, it looks... You could obviously tell it's a person in there, but it also looks like a beast at the same time. Whereas the new ones, they look plasticky, fake. That goes across the board for... All creatures, pretty much now. Yeah, same things with same thing with the uh, armies too. Oh yeah, because they pretty much, I believe this is right. They took like one or two or three rows of real people, and then they copy and pasted in the back. Right. So the lighting's still the same. Like it's still tangible people, which, just which makes sense copied. because of right. these the scale of these battles are crazy. Yeah, and they still look fantastic. And Jackson does a great, you know, great work with the camera across the board. But he's really great at just kind of mocking what a drone would do today probably for uh, many yeah. films of this nature and just flying over i would say that's a good comparison. just chaos um and, the, the, and it just looks so beautiful yeah the, the first movie doesn't have too much of like these large scale battles that we know and love from the from this franchise right the first one's more of a smaller scale i would say overall it's a lot it, of the setup it, but it in feels, a very good way yes yeah. it's a great setup of it's uh it definitely it's very um with the characters in this one and not so much with the battles. Mm-hmm. Even though we do get lots of action, it's just the scale of the action is nowhere near as close as the second and third films. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just, it has the sense of scale that no other film for me has matched. Um, even the best of Star Wars doesn't have that scale. It feels limited by the time, which is nothing that those movies have a fall to. And the new ones don't do enough for me anyway. Um but there's something about these three that I think will forever hold up. Um, yeah. And it's just, it feels so personal from Jackson. You could tell he found the best people who all read the books, all cared about the story, and just they did their homework. All the sets feel real. I mean, New, New Zealand helped them out, but still, all the costumes, probably the best costume design for any series franchise across the board. I can't think of anything that'd be better. For some reason, I, I almost said Harry Potter, but I realized everyone has a robe. <laughs> right. Yeah, which Harry Potter is still fantastic for everything set worthy. Yeah. I mean, to make Hogwarts fit the description that everyone has in their head is nuts. But I think for Lord of the Rings especially, there's so many more of those types of locations that they just nail. It's It would be impossible to replicate. Well, what's, I think what's unique about the whole movies in general is that they took like this again, like the map of Middle Earth, yeah, is like something that J.R.R. Tolkien made it like for the books, right? In the language of elf, elven. I'm pretty elven? sure is it elven? I think so. 
but this is all real that he took the time and wrote and i think these movies were only as good as the books yes right and that's that's why this works so well was because of how much work Tolkien put in these books yeah and, and he it, did it, such a good job of world building right yeah it all comes down in the in the movies yeah and he just sure. he gave them such a canvas to take from and I, that's why i like the movies a lot too is it's the rare time we're cutting down is beneficial because there are times where Tolkien, you know, will take 30 pages to describe a hut that Bilbo and Samwise meet at casually for a couple minutes and then leave. Like that's a whole segment um, before they even leave the Shire. And so I understand entirely why for some people like the books have this barrier to entry because of how much detail, but the films just take that and like take those 30 pages and make it a shot. And yet that shot fits the description perfectly. There's also lots of singing between the dwarves yes. and the all the characters in general, but that's something that doesn't reach the same scale as the books has. I know that from the movies. Yeah. But again, it still happens, just mm-hmm. not as much. Right. I think the music, too, um, from Howard Shore kind of compensates for that a little bit because they're really able to um, sort of bring that energy that would be missing that you can't replicate in a book because you can't hear anything. So they have to have the characters sing to bring up that energy. But in the films, right. you can crank up Howard Shore's horns and it's just it's otherworldly in the best way possible. So there's the regular cut and then there's the extended cut <laughs> yes yeah i think for here's my take on watching the i, I know the extended edition, say, i think for fellowship first watch fellowship two towers you can watch the theatrical releases regardless of if it's your first time watching or your 20th return of the king has to be the extended cut there's stuff in there that actually changes the story um for the better i think that they cut out from the theatrical re- version i know why because a lot of it's implied but um, yet, I think on rewatch, you need to do extended edition for all three. You need to keep in mind the uh, extended edition fellowship <laughs> added thirty minutes of yeah. additional cut to take its running time from one hundred seventy-eight minutes to two hundred eight minutes. Yeah, that is nuts. That is not nuts. as long as the third one, but still crazy. The third one is, I believe, almost four hours, right? Yeah, the extended. Yikes. Not a bad way, though, because I think that's what's great about these movies. The pacing is amazing because none of it feels like you're just sitting there waiting for stuff to happen, especially in the third film. Like, it could have very easily dragged until they get to Mordor, but it doesn't. It just keeps up the pace. And there's some, we'll talk about this more, but there's just something about the culmination of this story that is not replicated anywhere else. More the, for the story's sake, but it's just, it's so well the done. The whole lead up to the end. It's so well done. Because there's not a there's not a moment where you're like ah eh, that could have been removed, you know. And the stuff that was added, sure, it's a little padded sometimes, and you can feel the runtime, um, especially in two towers. But it's not a bad thing. Like all the stuff that's added in helps the lore, it helps some of the characters, it builds some of them up who don't get a ton of time potentially in the theatrical versions. And I think the, as a fan, you just have to see it. I think the the most boring of the first movie is probably the opening. It's getting the adventure started. Oh, I love the opening. Really, like when Bilbo puts the ring on, the and whole like, and fireworks and birthday oh, celebration, because it just sets the tone. You know, like this is where their happy place is, and it takes them forever to get back to it, and it's this whole arc just to get back to that comfortable so, like, spot. This is my, this is my confession. Okay, if I rewatch it, I'll rewatch the amazing opening scene of Fellowship. Oh, right. Okay, <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> okay, love it. Yeah, and then once we get to the Shire. Oh, like the prologue, you mean? That's why I was just confused. I was like, oh, the opening series talked about about the prologue. Yes, that's the best way to start yep. any movie. Is I could potentially skip some of it. 
Okay, I understand. To like probably when like Gandalf goes and like finds the to the books and finds about the rings and figures it and out. It cuts and to goes like, to Frodo, to like yeah. Gollum too. Like oh, being tortured right. too. Right. Yeah. That's when this starts to get interesting because even just as an outsider of the story entirely, you're like, ooh, this is kind of mysterious. But it's very, I can see why the Shire drags. It's a, a and the tone's very dark too in this one. Oh yeah. Mm. We have the Nazgul. I think that's how you say it. Love it. So cool. And I think they're better than like the Dementors from Harry Potter because we only really see their face. I don't think we see their faces. No, the only time we do in which they're mainly in the first one. They show up sporadically throughout the, the remaining two films, but the first one is where they're the main villain. Um, and we only see their faces when uh, Frodo puts the ring on and he can see oh, like right. their it's, ghost it's versions. Yeah, the yeah. Ghost. But outside of that, they're entirely, you know, they're hooded. You can't see their faces. And the screech that's associated with them, the soundtrack, obviously, and just the whole tone. Like, it's a little campy at times. But these movies play into that to the perfect degree. I always knows that because in I rewatched Prisoner of Azkaban not too long ago, and mm-hmm. in the opening scene on the remember on the train when we first when see you them, see them, yeah, we see, like we see their hood and then we see their actual face. Right, it's like all black because they've like another mask on, but you see it. So you're like, oh, it kind of takes away a little bit. Yeah, and, be, and like in here we don't see their actual face. So you can only like your imagination is scarier than what they yep, could make. Exactly. So. It makes it scarier for you, and it holds up, especially when you watch those, because it just keeps your imagination going. So what first track do you want to play? Because this is, this is a good album. Because it just keeps your imagination going. So what first track do you want to play? Because this is, this is a good album. This is a good album. Do we take from the theatrical soundtrack first? I have the extended pulled up, but I can do that if you want. Maybe. All right, maybe we go extended, but how about... Maybe something from the beginning, your choice. Do you have one? I think we should start from the beginning. The very beginning? We have to. Okay.
you see that theme of hope at the end. Yeah. Right, because that's where the, it enters right into the Shire. Right. With, um, with Bilbo. But that's a very uh, great track with all the themes, pretty much. We got Gollum's theme going on. We have the Ring theme, which you will hear a lot <laughs> throughout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think Saruman's theme. I think so. It's in there. It's a lo- basically a good chunk of the theme. Also right Nazgul, there. too. They have their, their oh, that's right, yeah. in there. It's, it's pretty much... it's. It's the best movie prologue I've ever seen, um, and the music just backs it up even more. Mm-hmm. But that that put again that that kind of like that was a setup. We we see some Gollum. We see kind of like very much introduces us to the world of right men and wizards and elves and everything. Yeah, it does a good expect. job of setting it up, and it really, um, I guess, what's the word? It gives this. It sets the tone, first of all, but it also just it lets you know that it's important, but it's not taking itself uber seriously, which I like. And the movies kind of know that you know this is fantasy, this isn't you know supposed to be realistic and gritty and dark. So they play into that a little bit, which I really love. But the music kind of it just sets this epicness that I don't know of any other score really matching, maybe outside of Star Wars. But even then, Star Wars just has a different approach, whereas yeah. this just has such a big, you know. Like every like the stakes are so high and the music just hammers at home. What's your favorite track? Would you say? I'd say my favorite. Uh, I have a few, give but I'd say if I had to pick, it would be "Give Up the Halfling." I and that's also in four K the other day listening to that. That's also "Flight to the Ford" or "Fjord" technically. I don't know why it's spelled like that. Um, in the theatrical original soundtrack release, um, but they're both the same. One, the recording is a little different. Uh, it's what you actually hear in the film. It's a little bit more natural like the um the touched up one for the soundtrack version is very perfect and posh but also, i like both if i'm not wrong is the, the cons- council of elrond assembles that's when we get the f- the first theme of like the the fellowship theme i think yes and i love the build-up for that yep. that's really good with the and that's where you get like, the, the big shots of middle earth or new zealand in this case yeah, it's so nice too because it's where you know you leave elrond and Elrond is um, created a lot with matte paintings and miniatures, so it still feels very real, but you can tell it's not a real location entirely. That pops entirely. off the screen in oh, 4K. Look, I can't imagine. Oh, man. But there's something else, too, about going from this um, still very you know, rooted in what could be real um, setting, and then you go right to just the mountains, and it's just helicopter shots, and it's sweeping, and it's beautiful, and it's just them walking, but even if the music wasn't there, it would still be powerful, yet Shore just knows how to... I think we have our next two tracks planned out. I think we do. (laughs) And Um, did you notice, too, Give Up the Halfling happened after track 21, but it's before, which I don't understand why. It's not not completely in order, too. That's weird. I thought it was pretty much in order. I guess not. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, well, in that case, we will start with Give Up the Halfling will be second, and then Council will be first. Yeah, let's do it in order.
Okay, so that was a few pieces because we got tricked. <laughs> yeah, the uh, naming on this album is not very helpful, unfortunately. But it worked out. We started with um, the Council of Elrond Assembles, which is the lead-up to uh, them leaving as the Fellowship. It's a still beautiful nonetheless, uh, but did not feature what we wanted, which played at the end. Yes. Then we went to um, Give Up the Halfling, otherwise known as Flight to the Ford, which is a beautiful part when... Um, Oh, what's her name again? Liv Tyler. Tyler's Liv, character. Liv Tyler's character. <laughs> I am terrible with names. Um, is ushering Frodo. Basically, to, poison. any character in his, in his universe has a name that most people can't pronounce. So. Is it Air? Not Ariel. That's that's something else. <laughs> oh, <laughs> come on. No. Um, I know, it's gonna bother do me. Do you now. notice how the Fellowship theme, not as similar, but has the same vibes of terms of what it means the audience when they hear it? As like it's Arwen. Theme. Sorry, it's Arwen. Arwen's theme, yeah, because yeah. the Peon guys do a cover too. Right. But um, the Avengers theme and the Fellowship theme. Great comparison. Their structures similarly, yeah. They have that very. Like, um, think about what powerful. they what they mean for the characters and what it means for us when we're watching it. Yeah. It's the same hype up. It's like they're assembling, basically. Yeah. Um, the fellowship assembles. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, it's uh, but it's a good point because it's actually they they are phonetically similar. Um, so yeah, we went from um, that to give the halfling, which is beautiful during a moment when Arwen is ushering Frodo away Frodo got, after he's poisoned. He gets stabbed. Stabbed by one of the Nazgul. Yep. Um, and he's care. basically dying. Yes. And she's rushing him uh, away from the Nazgul as they're chasing her. It's a beautiful scene uh, shot with some really awesome helicopter, uh, I guess, drone equivalents. And then finally went to um, the ring travels south or the ring goes south, rather, from the original soundtrack album because we couldn't find it on the complete recordings because the naming is different. And that's the moment when the Fellowship departs Elrond, and it's the first time where they actually have all of them together. The only time, actually, where all of them are together until the very end. Um, and it's this beautiful rendition of the Fellowship theme, which, like you mentioned, is uh, very strong. Yeah. The next thing to talk about is, I guess, Gandalf dies. He does die. Spoiler alert, everyone. No way. Um, he, I will say this. The one thing I don't love about Gandalf is he's very different when he comes back as Gandalf the White. We talked about this before. We I told before. you it's and supposed to be that I way. I know it's supposed to be that way, but I love how he was with Gandalf the Grey, and it kind of goes away. He becomes a more of a side character with one great moment in the third movie, which we'll save till that episode. How about one great moment? One great moment for him. How about his big entrance... <laughs> In, he the, has in the Battle big, of Helm's Deep. He it's one of the greatest big, cinematic know, achievements in history. I See, I just triggered something. Um, How many times have I said, <laughs> come to my room, we're going to watch that scene, and I blast it. I know. That has happened before. That has happened before. But, hear me out. That's no. not... That's Gandalf in a leadership position, very removed from him. I like him as his quirky, funny self in Gandalf the Grey time. Where that feels different as Gandalf the White. Do you understand why, the shot feels of, different. of them going down the hill? Yes. This is one of the greatest shots I've ever seen in my life. I know. And I agree with you. I'm just not a fan of Gandalf in that moment. Everything else is fine. I'm just not a fan of Gandalf in that moment. Also, his only time where he kind of shines for me is in the third he, episode. He the third literally episode shines in the Battle of Helm's Deep. That's I, the whole point. I He's know, the sun. He I comes know, out of the sun. I know. It's brilliant, and I can't complain, but, but... I like him more as Gandalf the Grey. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, he's basically um, this Jesus-like character. Is how they set him yeah. up. It's how he dies and he comes back to life. 
Right. Um, in this different version now. More um, perfect form, I guess. Right. And he's he looks more like a god or like Jesus or something when there's all right. white robe, right? When he comes back and like the heavens shines on him mm-hmm. and he rides down a horse. Yeah, it's awesome. And the whole Battle of Helm's Deep, which right. they were, yeah, it was basically they're supposed to lose and then they don't. He's the deus ex machina for that movie. Um, and again, beautiful. Everything about it is great. It's just something about him, because he's in that different form, he just feels different. That's all. <laughs> I love how he was so bothered. He's like, are you kidding me? That was fun. <laughs> we got to do that more often. <laughs> but what he said is just wrong. Though. It's that's an opinion. I don't know if it's wrong. Uh, it's do very you, do you, probably only. Do me. you remember what he says when he comes back? No, not offhand. So who's he replace? Who does he replace? Who's the white wizard before him? Oh, Saruman. Yeah, yeah. So he says, "I am what he should be." Oh, right. Hmm. You're right. So it's it's really a combination of his character and Saruman. And, correct. Which combined. is brilliant that they were able to and make him do feel you know, different. Even though we're not talking about the second movie yet. That they blended Christopher Lee's voice, which you forgot his name last week too. But Christopher yes, Lee's voice, his voice. His name. Jeez, I can't speak. Together. <laughs> to make it because you know how they unveil him as like yes. you think it's Christopher Lee. Yeah, because he's white and you don't right. see his face yet. Yeah. And they blended their voices. Because you don't see him and huh. then they show it. It's genius. I didn't know that. Yeah. I gotta rewatch that. You watch the scene, you hear it every time once you know it. Okay. Um, I remember. I think yeah, it's Gandalf's horse, though. This is funny. You talk about this. It's one of the scenes when the horse has to like walk, like mm. gallop, I guess, to Gandalf. Yeah. Where he like goes across the field. They had to do it like a million times because he actually did it. It's not CGI. Oh, they had to actually do <laughs> they had it. Train the horse to actually they walk actually, across the field wow. the right way. That's like, probably what it was. Be like horse. You know, you're, you're not. We're trying to frame you, and you're doing it all wrong. You gotta do it again. Yeah. He's just like, yeah, no. That's probably just a menial shot that no one would care about, but yeah, Peter Jackson's probably so proud of it. Yeah, and today, having a hundred, not even a thought in a director's head to not CGI that moment today. Right. It would just be easier. Not even a thought. Yeah. Yet they had that extra effort and I guess time, but also there's the extra care for detail. Yeah. Right. And there's my favorite scene, which I have told you many, many times how yes. I would like to die, is by three extremely long arrows impaled in my chest as I'm fighting off orcs yes. and fighting to the death and holding my sword in my hand. And that's the death of Boromir. There's no better way to die. Yeah. Hear me out. I agree for the sake of heroism. Probably pain. Very painful. Um, Adrenaline. He felt nothing. He yay. kept on going. People were like, how, how, how could he still keep on fighting? And there's like three long arrows in his... Bro, <laughs> these are all like men. They're like super strong. Like they're, they're, these are not like That's true. they're not men. regular men. Yeah, they're the sense of kings and this people of power. Thing. Yeah, they're they're extra strength. That's the whole point. Like like, like you always forget Legolas is weightless, mm-hmm. right? That's like all the famous scenes, especially in the Hobbits. Really cool. One of the things the Hobbit does right is that he walks up the stairs, the stairs, the stairs that are breaking. Right, right, and he can keep climbing each brick because he's weightless. Yeah, which it, at first people complain like, nothing. oh, it looks weird, but it fits the story right it's so cool yeah and that's again detail and attention right that they actually did <clears throat> but so we have to play my favorite track like I said yes Volmir's death okay is so, that um let me guess the name there's a few different um, I was gonna say there's a few different ones yeah there's a few different versions of it there's Amon Hen in um the 
theatrical soundtrack version, and I believe it's Parth Galen. Or no, The Departure of Boromir, I think. Yeah. So it's up to you. Surprise me.
that was the departure of Boomir, one of my favorite tracks. It's also on my playlist. Again, there's not a better way to die. Change my mind. Yeah, I, I see it. Still painful, but I see it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> not the only thing we disagreed on today. So <laughs> uh, that was fun, though. We'll yeah. So again. we get we get that scene, and then basically, this is when Frodo's like, "Yeah." Bye, guys. <laughs> he runs away, hops on a boat. Oh, Sam true. really can't swim and decides to drown himself because it's so sad what's happening. No, actually, he just can't swim and Frodo has to save him. Yeah. And then, yeah, they, basically Sam and Frodo go on their own way. And then that sets up the second movie, which is heavy on Gollum's journey. And Gollum then gets with Frodo and Sam. And we have the Fellowship, the other side of them, do their own thing. Right, but it's a period of separation between the two. Yep. So, first one is a it's really solid. Yeah. It's again at first glance, like on paper, you're like, eh, it's not this, it's not as good as the other ones because it's lacking the the big epic scale battle pieces that we get from the second and third one. Right. But it holds. It's really good. I still love it. I'd say it's probably Return of the King is my favorite. My dad always says Fellowship is the best one. He's always said that, and he's not. He's not wrong. Right. And I would say I'd agree with your dad. I think the fellowship is the best and only because it sets it up so well. If this movie didn't do well, yeah. it would to flounder entirely. But this actually really, really set it up spectacularly. Return of the King has my, I love the ending, but mm-hmm. the whole like army of like. Oh, that's kind of like, cool. The army of ghosts or whatever is like. Right. Eh. Cause, it's kind of fun. Because they, they can't lose. Because it's like they can't die. So it's like, eh. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a discussion for next week. That is a discussion. Which be part two. Right. And we're going to be combining both the second and third, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so Probably we'll around an hour for each movie. Yeah. And then I just thought about this. Hopefully we can actually do our big final discussion because that is finals week and there's a possibility the studio's locked. True. But we should True. be able to record it in a different studio if necessary. Yes. We and still we'll got to get the content out. The, uh, the recording to put on, so... We'll, uh, we'll make it work. But I'm looking forward to next week's episode. I think it'll be really cool. Um, t- tackling both Two Towers and Return of the King will be a stacked episode for sure. Yeah, it's going to be um, lots of content. Again, we're going to have two more movies that we're going to be looking at. And then we're going to compare these two franchises, which is almost impossible. Yeah, but um, I think we're going to have to do it. It's doable. So that's all we got for today's episode of The Film Maestro. I'm AJ. I'm Jack. And that's all we got for you today. Until next time. We'll see you next week.